Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zhou, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTV. This week's message is brought to us by Elder Derek Gatke. He's preaching from Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Good morning, everyone. My name is Derek Gatke. I'm one of the elders here at COTB, and uh, I really hope I'm not becoming a harbinger of doom for everyone, because this will be the, next, the second time I've preached right after a pastor left the church. So, <laughs> so a little bit of a, of, of a bittersweet Sunday for us. Um, you know, it'll be our first Sunday without Abe uh, in person. In spirit, he's always with us. Um, but we're still a church. We're still a family. We're still moving towards what God calls us to. So today we're starting a new series um, on the Ten Commandments, uh, what we're calling God's Top Ten, and it's going to be preached by the teaching team that Abe and Michael and I helped put together, which includes myself, Michael Morgan, the other elder here at COTB, uh, the past, and then the pastors Ashanti Petaway, Joyce Dalrymple, and Emmanuel Padilla. Uh, so we're looking forward to them joining us as, as the weeks go on. Um, so. I just want to start us off just like to get us a little primer for the series. Why are we looking at the Ten Commandments? And honestly, why does God give commandments at all? Um, Is it just to give us a set of guidelines on how to be good, how to be better people, how to be morally upright? Seems like some of these are a little extreme when you look at them. But the way the Bible lays them out is that the Ten Commandments are a guide to holiness. I'm sure when we hear the word holiness, a lot of us are like, well, that's just really, really good goodness, right? When the Bible uses the word holy, the definition of that word is actually set apart. It has nothing to do with morality in and of itself. And what speaks about God being holy, it's not just that he's good. It's that he is set apart from the world in his righteousness, his power, his purity, his very essence. But here's the trick. God calls us to be holy, not just with the Ten Commandments, but throughout the Bible. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, uh, Peter, disciple of Christ, is teaching us. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So why does God call us to be holy? Seems like a pretty tall order. Because we were designed to be like him. Go all the way back to the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. One thing I want to call out, notice the change in the noun being used here. We start saying God said, God, singular noun. But then he says, let us make man in our image. So who's he talking to? It's not the angels. Those are the only other people he could think of right now that would have a conversation with him. It's not the animals he just made. They wouldn't respond. Um, He's talking to himself. And by that, I mean the other persons of the Trinity. This is the first verse that gives us a glimpse sort of behind the curtain that God is multiple persons. So there are two takeaways that we have as we go into this series. First, if we're made in God's image, 
and he is holy, and we are called to be holy, then the way we should perceive holiness for ourselves is what we were designed to be. Certainly not what we are right now, but it is what God built us to be. Second, if we are designed to reflect the Trinity, which is a community, then holiness requires the involvement of others. It's not something you can just do in the privacy of your own home. Not really. You can fake it. But all the commandments, when you look at them from a broader perspective, like a bird's eye view, they're really about how we relate to others. Jesus himself summarized this in Matthew 22, uh, verses 35 through 40. He's being asked questions by the Pharisees. They're always trying to get at him because, you know, that's what they did. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, he being Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So as we go through this series, just to keep this in mind, if you look at the Ten Commandments, commandments from that perspective, usually it's been summarized that, this way, that commandments one through four are pretty much about how we relate to God, and commandments five through ten are how we relate to other people. So I'm not going to get into all of that today, but as we go, as you hear these sermons through the next couple of months, just keep that in mind. First four commandments are about how we relate to God. The, la the last six are about how we relate to other people. Now, if the commandments are a guide to holiness, and that's what we were designed to be, then yes, we could look at these Ten Commandments as the things you should be doing, or we can look at them as the instruction manual for the human machine. When do you grab an instruction manual? When something's going wrong, right? So that your, your printer's not working, and you open up an instruction manual. For most printers, it says, that's normal. <laughs> but, um, but anytime something's wrong, we usually go to the instructions to find out, okay, what do we do? How do we troubleshoot? How do we start this thing over? But that's not enough. I don't know how many of you own cars. I'm assuming many of us do. Every time I take a car in for an oil change, which is what the instructions tell me to do, the mechanic always finds, oh, this is rusting, this is broken, this is about to blow up, your tire has a knife in it. Like, like <laughs> it's, there's always so much going on under the hood that I had no idea about. And the most I'll ever get from my car is a blinking engine light. You need to know not just how you're supposed to operate, you need to know what to look for to, in yourself, in your inner machine to prevent further damage, and in many cases, all-out destruction. If you don't know how you are supposed to be running, you're gonna run bad, you're gonna run wrong. You're not gonna put gas in the tank, you're gonna put butter. Now, this is all just a preamble for the series. Today, we're gonna dive into the first commandment, and that's gonna be the focus of our talk today. And as we look at it, I wanna take us through three major points. So anyone taking notes, get, get them ready. The points I'm going to take us through are the fire inside us, the fuel we seek, and the Father who seeks us. It's the fire inside us, the fuel we seek, and the Father who seeks us. 
Would you guys mind bowing your heads with me quick as we pray to get into this? Father, um, holiness is a pretty tall order. We pray that you would help us not take us lightly, but be open to what your scripture actually says about this process, actually says about our condition and what you have done to bring us through. In Jesus' name we pray, please guide my heart and my words that you speak, not me. Amen. All right. So, the, today, first commandment, rule number one, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Seems pretty cut and dry, ready? Right? Like, I think right off the bat, we can do the easy eliminations. I don't think anyone here is chomping at the bit to go worship Anubis or Quetzalcoatl or any of the false gods of the old histories. Most preachers will then go to the next step of the modern application of don't follow other gods is all other religions are off the table, right? Christianity, it's, that's the one. Everything else is bad. There you go. There's your sermon. And then some preachers who thought a little bit harder will usually bring up um, the more common gods that we recognize in our society, which is money, sex, and power. And I could go for a whole hour on the, the dangers and the, and, the, and the badness of money, sex, and power. I'd like to call out today that I think knowing what other gods can be is really only half the battle. This commandment is the first out of the ten. That should draw our attention, and it's there for a very important reason, because it's the first and most common thing to go wrong with the human machine. You look at all the other commandments, and if you really think through it, you should see the pattern being, you can't break any of those unless you've broken this one first. And most of the time, you've already jumped to number seven or number eight without even thinking about number one. So what God's trying to tell us by putting this first is, hey, if you're already dabbling in these over here, start here to see what's actually going on. So what is going wrong here? Why is this the big one? Why, what does this actually look like? All right, going back to Genesis. We were created not only to be like God, holy in community with each other, but we were also created to live forever in community with him. You go back to the original accounts of Genesis, God's not just like on high talking to Adam and Eve from the sky and every so often they get a vision. He's walking with them in the garden. God built us to just be there with him. In essence, he built us to be extensions and reflections of the Trinity. Now, what do I mean by that? Look, uh, if we think about the Trinity, it's at the heart of all creation, right? It's, it's the heart of existence. Everything comes from God, the Trinity. What do the persons of God do? What did they do before creation? What do they do now? They love and they glorify each other. They love and they glorify each other. And glorify, when you look up the actual definition, is praise and worship. So the Son, when the, when the Bible talks about the Son glorifying the Father, or the Father glorifying the Son, they're talking about worshiping each other. That seems kind of strong, doesn't it? We think, when we think praise and worship, that I don't know about you, but my image is the lowly creature being like, please, please don't destroy me today. Um, it, it's like, the, like there's a hierarchy. Like, like the, the thing that's being worshipped has to be higher than the other. But what the Trinity does is it's a cycle what the late Tim Keller used to call a dance, a dance of the Trinity. 
dance with the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. They love and glorify each other continually. None of them ever feel like they're missing out because the other one picks them up in the dance. We were designed to be part of that. Not on the same level as God the Trinity, that's not what I'm saying, but we were designed to be invited into the dance, to love and worship God on such a level, and also, listen to my words and don't think of me a heretic yet, to be loved and to some degree glorified slash worshiped by God. I know that sounds a little like I'm bucking for a lightning bolt when I say that, right? But that's what the Bible teaches. So what this means is that the nature of love and worship is written into our DNA. It's as much a need as food, drink, sleep, the things that we take for granted, we just, we just have to do. We just have to do it to live, right? Like you just do it. We were built to have these needs fulfilled by God, but we turned away. We walked away from the dance, and this broke everything. The engine that was built to run on God, we shattered. And suddenly all you have are these loose wires and flames raging inside you, needing fuel, needing that supply, but it doesn't have the right shape anymore. The needs are still there, but now our engine is just looking for anything to fulfill them. This fire, what I will call the fire inside us, this burning need to love and worship and be loved and worshiped in return, it rages inside us whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not. And if we don't feed that fire with what it was made for, God, then it will seek something else. So that brings us to the fuel that we seek. What is a god? Now, those who have seen the film Ghostbusters definitely know it's not Ray Stans, right? Remember that line, are you a god? No, then die. Anyway, um, <laughs> whenever someone asks if you are a god, you say yes. That's a valuable lesson we learned in that. No, when the Bible talks about a god, um, in the biblical sense, even capital G God, what it's saying is anything that you place your utmost hope trust and worth in. You may not think that you love and worship it, but it's somehow fulfilling that need, feeding that fire at least enough to keep you from going crazy. I think most sociologists will agree that community and love is a psychological need for all of us. We recognize that. What a God does is fill that need somehow. And it might do the, it, it's going to do the other side too. It's going to make you feel loved and worshipped. And thus you love and worship it in return. Even if you don't think you do. The common issue with all gods that are not capital G God is they can't sustain us. So going back to the idea that there's this fire in our heart, there are three kinds of materials that you use to build a fire. Okay, There's tinder, which is not just a bad dating app. It's, there's an actual definition for it. There's um, kindling, uh, and then there's fuel. Now, tinder is the stuff that burns up in a flash. It's paper, it's dry wood, it's, it's old dead leaves. That's meant to like get the fire like, it's like the, the head of a match. 
is Tinder. It's meant to just like get it started. Kindling is a little bit la longer lasting. It's like dry sticks. It's, it's stuff that the fire can latch on for a little bit, but it's not going to last. And then finally, there's what scientifically is actually called fuel. And by that, we're talking like logs, big blocks of wood, things that the fire will latch onto, and then it can sustain for long periods of time. The thing is, tinder and kindling, you have to start with them because it's so much easier. Have you ever tried to light a log? <laughs> it's just, I don't know if you got like two logs, you're going <laughs> It's not gonna work. But tinder, kindling, boom. There it is, you don't even have to try. And everyone who's ever tried to build, okay, for the younger kids, in days of yore, before electricity, there was this thing called fire. And you couldn't just flip on the gas, you had to like rub some sticks together and do this, go watch Survivor, you'll see them do it a lot. Um, but if you ever tried to build a fire on your own, you know it's really hard unless you have the right structure, you've got the kindling in the right place, but you know you can't rely on the tinder and kindling. That's just to get you started. Eventually, you gotta get that fuel or that fire will burn itself out. The temptation though is the tinder and kindling, that's where you actually see flames. And so if it starts to go down, your temptation is, oh, throw more on it, throw, throw more. But it's just gonna burn it up. That's what false gods are like. Yeah, you can latch onto it, your heart will go after it, you'll feel that sensation of, oof, I got, I got some fuel, and then, it's gone. Now when we look at when we look at the ancient gods of yore again, nobody here is thinking about Loki and Thor and thinking, man, I should really check out those churches. Some of you might be worshiping Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston, but that's a different issue. <laughs> but when we look at gods in the modern day, most of us are drawn to the what those gods represented, which is again, sex, money, power, what I would call the major false gods that I think most of us would at least recognize if someone said false gods. The novelist um, David Foster Wallace gave a very brilliant commencement speech that touched on a lot of this. Uh, at Kenyon College in 2005, sadly, uh, not too long after this, he committed suicide. But he summarized these issues, I would argue, I, I believe from more of a secular viewpoint um, than, than you would think, but this is some of the stuff that he shared at his commencement, and I just wanna, because this is very wise stuff. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough, and it's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. If our hearts don't have the proper fuel, they'll settle for whatever's there. Kindling, tinder, whatever's at hand. Fire doesn't even, it doesn't like choose. It can't be like, oh, no, no tinder for me, please. It's just gonna grab it. That's the condition of our hearts.
Now, it's easy for me to call out what, again, what I said, would say with the major gods, and I could lecture you guys for hours about the dangers of sex, money, power. But if there's a different set of gods, the gods we don't see, that I really want to warn us about. The insidious thing about these gods is inherently they're good. God made them for us to enjoy. They're gifts. But we've elevated them, or we can elevate them, to become the primary fuel of our lives. And that is not something they were built for. I'll give you some examples. Our hobbies and interests. What I mean, like sports, movies, uh, book series, celebrities, music. I'm a big fan of board games. Um, anything that you enjoy but doesn't inherently lead you to sin. There's nothing wrong with sports inherently. There's nothing wrong with watch, well, there's certain movies that you cannot watch, young man or woman. But these are gifts. They're, they're works of art. They're, they're actions of creativity. God created us to create and enjoy things and enjoy what he's built and enjoy what other people have built. But go to a football game in America and tell me that's not a worship service. And I'd, I'm no worship shaming folks, but go to a football game. How loud are you cheering for a team? How loud are you cheering here? Are you more excited about the gospel or the next episode of The Bear? This is just a gut check, okay? <laughs> like, this is, I, I have no evidence to support that any of you are, are, are struggling with, I don't know, addiction to Marvel Comics. <laughs> no, no judgment. Um, so that's one. Another one that I think is going to be hard pill to swallow, family. Your spouse, your kids, your parents your siblings. The thing that's really hard with this is, aren't we supposed to love? Of course we're supposed to love. Second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But this was a big one. Jesus warned us about this. Matthew 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is the problem. This fire inside you, it burns. If you are using your family as your, if you view them as your utmost joy, your utmost treasure, the, the reason you exist, you will either burn them with the incredible weight of your worship. Worship is a synonym of glory. Do you know what glory actually means? Weight, heaviness. To worship anything is to, is to direct your fire at it. You'll either burn them out or you will burn yourself out because you will ultimately and consistently be disappointed. They're not going to, they can't love and worship you to the degree that you want them to. They can't. And as much as you want to dote on them, your love and worship will not be what they need. Not ultimately. Last one, and this one, I, we'll see how this goes. 
Our own holiness. Our own holiness. <laughs> I know. I, I hope some of you are in the are in the seats. Like, you, you just told me the point of the commandments is to be holy. <laughs> well, how, what, wait, if if I do that, I'm breaking it. What are you saying, Derek? Those of you who have been here for a bit know that my background is in musical theater, and uh, when I was in college, big Broadway hit made it out called Wicked. Some of you know. So the women who know are usually like, woohoo, and the men who know it are like, <laughs> in my experience, in my experience. But the story of, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> right. It's pretty good. Anyway, um, in the story, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the musical Wicked, the story is about the Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, she's the main character. And the, the premise is, if you've ever seen like uh, Disney's movies Maleficent or Cruella, where they, they recast the villain as the hero, Wicked was kind of the one that started off that trend. And at the end of the musical, Elphaba, that's the name of, that's, you find out that's her real name, because she wasn't born and her daughter, or her mom said, well, Wicked Witch of the West is, put that on her birth certificate. Like, that's not, her name's Elphaba. Um, at the end of her life, she's gone through a lot of trials and tribulations. She's always, she's been an activist. She's always been trying to do good for the Kingdom of Oz, and she keeps getting smacked down by people who assume the worst of her, mostly because of her powers and the color of her skin. She's the only green person in Oz. Um, and she sings this song, some of you that missed my last sermon, or those of you who were here, you know I sang last time. Look, I want to make it clear, that's not my gimmick. <laughs> I, I'm not going to sing every sermon. I have to save it for special occasions, okay? So I'm just going to read the lyrics. You can all just calm down. Other people sing it much better than I. But she comes to this point where she's thinking about through her life, and she's getting frustrated, like, why does everything go wrong for me? And she says, one question haunts and hurts too much, too much to mention. Was I really seeking good or just seeking attention? Is that all good deeds are when looked at with a nice cold eye? So when I talk about holiness being a God, the question is, are you pursuing holiness to bring joy and honor to God or to earn love and worship for yourself? On the outside, it can look the same. Someone who's following the commandments to a T can look holy, but it's the heart that's the problem. It's why you're doing it. Jesus called out this issue with the Pharisees numerous times. Go read the Gospels. You'll find so many instances where they're like, why aren't you following this, this law? And Jesus will call out the spirit of the law is the problem. That's what you should be following. Do no work on the Sabbath. Yeah, but if you need to heal someone... Anyway, we'll get into that at the fourth commandment. But look, at the end of the day, here's the issue we're facing now. If everything, even our own obedience, can become a false god, what hope do we have? And here's the real pickle we're in, is we can't help ourselves. Fire can't decide what fuel it's going to latch on to. Going back to the beginning, the first commandment, what it does is tells us the root of sin, which is seeking something other than God to fulfill your desires. The tinder and the kindling are always more enticing because they're quick and easy. It doesn't take any effort, and our hearts are just built, just latch on to whatever we can find. God is the only thing that can actually fulfill us, yet the Bible makes it clear none of us seek him on our own. 
Psalm 14, verses 2 through 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Another thing to call out, whenever the Bible talks about hell, it uses imagery of fire. But then when it describes how people feel there, it says weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, when I think of someone on fire, I think of screaming, not weeping. Hell, what the Bible's actually talking about with hell, is separation from God, eternal separation. Even if you're here on earth and you don't believe in God or Christ, God's still present. You, don't, you won't know what it's like to be separated from God until you actually are. Hell is what happens when there's nothing to feed your fire but you. No more tinder, no more kindling, no more fuel. So what do we do? Praise God, we have a Father who seeks us. God knows we're too broken to come to Him first. He knows this. We're too busy grabbing up whatever tinder and kindling are around to think about him. So instead, he comes to us. Every prominent individual in the Bible, if you go and read their stories, God calls them first. You don't find anyone volunteering for anything. It's God calls Abraham. We don't even know what Abraham was doing. He could have been the most heinous sinner on the face of the planet. All it says is God called him one day. Moses called from a burning bush. Samuel called as a child. He didn't even know who was saying his name at first. David, Mary, the disciples, they got called right out of the middle of their job. They weren't following Jesus, they were fishing. Paul was in the process of killing Christians. God called him. None of them were seeking God. None of them could. But calling isn't enough. We need God to fix what's wrong with us. Now, if our hearts are constantly burning for the wrong things, then we need a new heart. We need a new engine. We broke ours, and now it's just burning. In Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Just one more time. He says he will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promises to not just teach us, but change us, to transform us. How did he do this? What is this clean water he's talking about? John 4, verses 13 through 14. Jesus is talking to a woman at the side of a well. It's a very good story, but it's also worth its own sermon, so I won't get too into it. But at one point he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, willing up to eternal life. And then later, not too much longer after that, John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In Jesus Christ, God didn't just call us. He came down and became us. He gave up his need to be loved and worshipped so that he could pull us back into the cosmic dance from the fire of our own making. Through his death on the cross, Jesus purified the human machine. He rebuilt it. And now Jesus can call each of us, offer us a new heart, a heart of flesh that he bled and died to secure for you. And restore us to who we were designed to be, loving and worshiping him and being loved and glorified by God. Now, for those of you still skeptical that the Bible says God glorifies us, I have proof. Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He can restore you. He wants to love you. He wants to glorify you. I want to leave you with an image that really sticks with me. Um, we're going back to Disney, folks. Um, a couple of years back, about seven years now, uh, Disney's Moana came out. Um, if you haven't seen it, you should go. It's, it's good. Um, and the, the, the premise is the heroine, Moana, is a young girl in, in an island nation. She, she's sent on a quest by her grandmother to find a long-lost goddess named Tefiti and restore her heart, which her grandma gives her. It's like a magical stone. So the whole time you're thinking it's just like, it's... It's a cool stone. It's got some magic powers, whatever. She goes through some adventures. She gets to hear the rock rap for a while. Um, and during her adventure towards the end, she's almost there. She's getting to where she's supposed to find this goddess, Tefiti. But she and her friends are attacked by a raging giant of fire named Teka. And Teka nearly kills them, breaks her boat. They're sent out into the ocean. They have to regroup. Her friends leave her. She has a hero's journey moment where she musters up the courage again. They go back for another round. And at the very end of the film, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it, Moana finds where she's supposed to restore the heart, but there's nowhere to put it. She turns around. She sees Teka still fighting with her friends, and she sees a hole in the giant's heart. And she realizes Teka, this raging fire beast, is the one she was sent to save. Told you I was going to save singing for a special occasion. So she calms the giant with this song. I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you. But this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. Jesus crossed the horizon of eternity, sin, fire, and darkness to find you. He knows your name, your real name. 
He wants to restore your heart because you were not meant to be just some love-starved, lonely creature grasping for whatever hint of meaning or pleasure you could find. <clears throat> Sorry. Will you heed him today? Will you let him change you? This goes for us two Christians. This is a renewal process. It takes a whole lifetime, and sometimes we forget, and we have to go back and let him do it again. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.